follow-up on right. Followed by a week later, we have the kickoff for the Grand Prix, which is going to basically be racing matchbox cars, and then some of our folks who've done that kind of thing before will get to see, bring us some kits that they made into really cool cars, and then from there until the actual Grand Prix, you get an opportunity, the young people will get an opportunity to make cars for race on that day and win uh, prizes and cookies and stuff like that. So we'll be promoting that to our friends. We're not going to go hog wild and the city wild, but we're going to promote it to our friends and let folks know they come to participate. That'll be cool. But right then, at the same time, that Sunday, that's the kickoff of the Grand Prix, where we're just going to race matchbox cars. That Sunday morning, uh, we'll have a good, uh, becoming, rapidly becoming a good friend of mine, Gary East from Mississippi, becoming, and he'll be preaching that Sunday morning. And then we'll be here Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. So that's the first week in November. And so we'll have church, if you will, or have worship, and have the word, and we'll have to be together, and some cool. And some children's activities paralleling the service, and then there will be the service, and we're just going to really dig into the Word. It's going to be a really cool opportunity and time to grow. And then the second Sunday in November, we have our all-family fellowship. So that's a potluck after church. Uh, do that instead of the team leader meeting, and the team leaders will be organizing and, and trying to make sure that happens and goes off well. And then that brings us to... More with that, that. What am I missing? The parade will be the first week. First of week of December, Christmas parade. You see Christmas parade if it doesn't cancel, which every reason every reason to believe it will not this year, unless it's really high winds and stuff like that. We've been out in the freezing cold before, and we've been out in the rain before, so uh, it's going to take something more than that to stop us. So we'll go out and glorify God, march the cross, and, and whatever else we decide to do. The flow that kind of thing. So that's coming in November or in December. And then it'll be probably some Christmas caroling leading up. And before you know it, it'll be Christmas morning. We'll be celebrating the birth of our Savior into this world. And so it's going to go fast. Hold on to your hats. Hold on to the safety bar. Buckle up. Let's, uh, let's really uh, make something out of this next couple of months and really glorify God. We have a lot of folks looking in our general direction. Had a great Tuesday night Bible studies across the board. A lot of folks represented in every group. And that was cool. And it's growing. But as you can see, we got a lot of folks out with sickness and a lot of folks out with uh, issues this morning. And so we pray for them, and then we'll jump back into worship. And what's really important is that we're focused on God while we're here. That's what's really important. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Don't worry about what everybody else isn't doing. Just worry about what God is doing. All right? Dead. Also, RJ is listening in online. He's hoping and praying that the rain holds off so we can get done. We've got leaks in five different rooms in our house now. <laughs> okay, well, we can, we can pray for, we'll pray in our opening that, there, that the rain will hold off, um, but uh, rain has a way of finding its way inside as it possibly can. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this day. Uh, we do thank you for the strength and the labor uh, opportunities. We can put our strength at your disposal. We do pray for our day. Pray for him as he's working on the roof right now. He's trying to do everything he can to stop the water from leaking in the house. And I uh, know that it, uh, it's a very big project. And so, uh, Lord, if you, could, if you could shield their efforts from the rain, um, we'd be very blessed. Pray for Kyla. He's sick. She had a long weekend and a difficult time uh, being in the emergency room this night before last. And it's not because of the sickness that he was there, because he swallowed something he shouldn't have. But, um, Lord, we're grateful that you take care of him. We ask you to heal him. I ask you for those who are present here. It's that flu cold season. we got a lot of little viruses and cold things going around. But overall, you have protected us. 
and we can only praise you. You have blessed us, and we have to praise you. We pray for those who might still be on their way here. We pray for this time that we have together, that it would honor you and glorify you, and we would be reminded of how awesome you are and how you want to work in us. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name.
I want to say to you that this, if you're not an art person, this would be a great starter for meditation, okay, which is our um, spiritual discipline of focus for just about a month and a half yet. And so meditation is when you take, you usually take a verse or you take something with, um, you take something that the Lord has said or something the Lord is doing and you sit and you dwell on it and you let it affect you. Uh, the easiest part with verses is to ask, who's in this verse? What is this verse saying about God? What is this verse saying about what it's talking about or what's going on at that time? What should I do about this? Okay. What are specific words in there and what do they mean? What do phrases mean? And as you do that, then the word more deeply affects you as you dwell on it. And like that. that's meditating. So if you're not going to do any art, which I highly recommend you do that, I intend to, then you can meditate on it. And then the goal is next week, and until the next art starter, because he's going to change them so often. Was it planned monthly? So going to change them monthly. So next week and the following week, and until the next one pops up, you have the opportunity to do something in your art and bring it to share during an inspirational moment. Now, you can just, by sharing it, like if you do a painting, you don't have to talk about it. Maybe painting is your thing, but talking about painting is not, right? So you don't have to talk about it. You can just put it on display, right? Or if you have a poem, we put it up on the screen. If you don't want to read it, somebody else can read it, you know, or we can put it up on the screen so people can see it. If you do a song, you can do it, okay? And then if, in between, if you're like, well, I want to bring it on Sunday, but I'm not 100% sure, you can load it up on our Facebook page, put that directly to the New Heights Facebook page, and then that will give people an opportunity to see it, not just our immediate church family, but others that are connected, okay? And so I just wanted to kind of point that out to you. If you're not going to art it, you can certainly meditate it. And out of meditation, you may be surprised a lot of times what you'll find that winds up turning into art. I kind of think meditation itself is an art, and people have said that before. So, okay, I just wanted to point that out to you. About a month and a half, I hope you're drilling down on what it is to meditate and getting good at that, and we're going to use it. We won't be coming back around to that spiritual discipline other than maybe just in passing for almost five years. Probably five years, we'll talk about it intentionally again. So if you have questions about meditation, or if you're doing it, you're having some success, you're going to tell us stories about meditation. Please do that so we can all be blessed, okay? Now, hopefully this last week, you've had some experiences. The Lord's been speaking to you in some way, or you've read something in your Bible that you'd like to share. What do you got? Brother Tony? So I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> I'm always excited. But uh, we've been doing church, honestly, like tearing down RJ's roof and having conversations. Um, we just got out of the van and we talked about some things. And for me, it was church. I, I got to hear what people thought, what they think. And we're, we're trying to find out what it means to be righteous for Christ and all this stuff. And Amen. Tuesday's discipleship was awesome. I like, literally, we're doing church. That's what church is. Church should be coming to church on Sunday. And it's not saying we're doing that. If we are, don't do that. Just don't do it. Like, that's the simple thing. Don't do it. Like, get out there. Let's grow. Let's teach. Let's grow. Let's be a body. Amen. We're doing church. And so what I'm saying is, is I'll be quick. I, I was in prayer. I haven't had this. And I thank New Heights. This is something I needed. And if it wasn't for New Heights and all the other people that God was using through his spirit, I wouldn't have this. I had a dream just recently. I won't share the dream with, you know, because it's a little personal. I'll share it with the brothers because it's a Proverbs chapter 8. And it's like one of my favorite ways that people don't use that scripture, I think, in context. But it's really good. It's about the adulterous woman. It's really about sinful flesh. It's not about being with a woman. If you read it, there's a lot more to that spiritually. And, mm -hmm. and so we'll go back to it in a second, or at another time we'll talk about it. But anyways, so I had this dream where I'm at a church. I don't want church on that. I, I, I hear our praise team. I hear our music or something. And no matter what, it's I'm there, 
but God's in this dream. So I know it's God. It's not me in this dream because I'm like, I don't know what's going on in this dream. And um, I get easily distracted, but I'm still worshiping. And it's like God just says, hey, get rid of the distraction. And I said, I can't. I like this. And he said, and, and he goes, I know you like it. And I understand you like it because we like our flesh. We like it. He's, God loves us. And you hear this on Facebook. He knows we like this. He doesn't look at us and go, oh, man, I can't believe you did it again. Oh, he's not Napoleon Dynamite. All right. He doesn't get disgusted by us. He knows we love things. And so God said, I need you to move. I can't. I'm in the front. I can't just move. Everybody's going to see me move. He's like, I need you to get up and get away from this distraction. So got up and worship was still moving. And it, I'm not saying anyone was godly or ungodly. I didn't feel like anybody was doing the godly thing anyways. But no matter what, I got up and I moved myself from that distraction. And then I felt God was near. And then I woke up. So... I say that because what I heard on Tuesday was so good. Put on the Lord Jesus. I used to like, I used to like not like that because it hurts my flesh. But then I started to get it more. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. And I'm like, and when I heard that, and I heard these guys talking, it's like God's speaking for every one of them. It's like even with some of our rambling and in our in our tangents, I'm like, oh my God, she's speaking to me. I'm like, I can't take this. Like, why is he speaking to me? It's awesome. God cares about us. So closing this, put on the Lord Jesus is a commandment by Paul. At first, God doesn't just say, do this, do that. He said, put on the Lord Jesus. Now he encourages you. If you put on the Lord Jesus, you make no provision for the flesh. Amen. That's, that's what it is. God's not saying, do this because I told you, do this. He's not us. I, I know deep down with our kids, we always say, do this because I want this or do that. But we're not perfect in our kids. We should tell them we're not perfect. God's perfect. And when he says, put on the Lord Jesus, he's saying, put it on. I commanded you. Now I'm just going to encourage you. I'm not going to quit. Put it on. Put it on and you'll have no time for the flesh. you have no space for the flesh. You'll get to do everything I say you can do. You'll be everything you can do. Anybody just praise God in their spirit or pray God right now. You don't want to say hallelujah. At least, at least get this. Amen. It's awesome. Put on the Lord Jesus and make a provision. It doesn't say put on the Lord Jesus and maybe. Put on the Lord Jesus and in time you'll. No. Put on the Lord Jesus and it's the Lord Jesus. Now put on Jesus. Now put on a Jesus. Put on some frame. Put on Lord, make him Lord, put it on, and make no provision. Did I still make provision for the flesh? Right here. I made provision for the flesh, and God's still working on me. There's a lot that I have to work on. But when I did, I made no provision for the flesh. That's the word. Put on the Lord Jesus, and make no provision for the flesh. Amen. That was good stuff. The Spirit was in the room. All right, anybody else? I don't do this often, so bear with me. Um, Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately, and there's a lot of hate and mistrust and anger. I work in an industry where we deal with a lot of people, and I've never, in 20 years of doing this, had so many people that are angry and swearing and yelling and accusing. And I've been accused of discriminating on race and national origin and age and everything else. I've been called a racist five times in the last six months um, because they didn't like what I was saying. And so during that time, I've been praying and thinking about that a lot because it's hard. It's, it's very hard to deal with that and not take it personal. And the, this verse keeps coming to mind. And so I believe God's saying to me, I'm trying to view 
my world, the people around me, the people I know, the people I with every day, through rose-colored glasses, and look at the beauty, and look at the good that's in the world, and look at, understand that people are hurting, and people are scared, and so a lot of times when they're lashing out, it has nothing to do with us. It's just whatever's going on in their life. They could have just lost a friend or whatever. And so I've been trying to respond with more kindness and speak a kind word when someone's coming at me in a nasty way. And even those, our church family, people I love, I'm trying to do more small acts of kindness and just look at people and go, I love this person. Regardless of whatever they've said or done or whatever their issues are, I love this person. I just wanted to share that. I think we're living in a time where we're in danger of becoming a very hateful society. And as Christians, I think we need to try to spread a little more love even than we normally do. Thank you for trusting the Lord, sister. All right, anybody else? Okay, so we're going to transition to tithes. And, oh, just one quick thing. I just, my biggest inspiration this week is the amount of people that were willing to take the time and come and help us in the time of need. It was very inspiring to me. So thank you to all of you. So I will not soon forget those cold raindrops. <laughs> for sure, praise the Lord. All right. I'm going to ask Brother Mike Bristol, would you, would you pray for us as we transition to tithes and offerings a little more worship? Do that. Pray with Mike. Father God, I want to give you thanks for this time we come together, worship you, dig in your word. God, I ask you to bless these tithes and offerings and use them as you see fit. God, I pray you do this throughout the rest of our service. We continue to worship. Do our pastor brings a message. And our kids workers, they go learn their lesson. And I pray everything that's done is possible for you. And uh,
mantra for me when I'm having a, a rough day, a little bit of trouble, and I will say, I didn't get through it on the way here without coughing fits, and I haven't had one since I was standing on this stage, so we're going to praise the Lord for that. You got your back, sister.
so blessed with our praise team um, and uh, you would if, if I had to lead music for us we would be in trouble <laughs> in fact when I had to lead music at the life station I just didn't do it we read psalms instead we would read just read three psalms and then go straight to the word which worked out fine um, but we're so blessed to have our praise team they'll be tomorrow night uh, in uh, Haven Heights leading the worship for our association which last time we had the 17 out of the 40 or so churches show up anticipating more this time, and so it's going to be a packed house full of Christians from all over Northwest Ohio, nine counties, and I think that, um, God willing, we're really going to give him the glory as we sing praise led by, glory to God. yes, as we sing praise led by uh, God, but through our praise team, so, and some interesting things on the agenda for that. Um, all right, we're going to go to the Word pretty quickly, but I want to share with you a story from my background, and I, and I Literally could have done a dozen different stories, um, but I chose one in particular that doesn't involve any of us. So if you can think of one that does involve you, um, then you, you will just know even better what I'm talking about. Um, I was a restaurant manager at Pizza Hut for seven and a half years. I started as a shift manager, became a manager in training, and then became a restaurant manager. So for the last roughly three and a half years that I was there, I was a restaurant manager. I managed three different restaurants, and I had over 30 employees in each of those restaurants. And the first restaurant, I started with about... Uh, 25 employees and got close to 40, and it became the biggest restaurant in the Toledo area as far as delivery and, and carryout. We didn't have a dining room, and still we were making the mo more money than almost all, all the dining room restaurants. So we were very, very busy. And I had a young man uh, who worked for me uh, who would make the dough. He would come in at about 5 o'clock in the morning, and he was very good, uh, and he had to be. And he would do it by himself, and he would make the dough um, for all of those sales that we would do. And so when I worked at Pizza Hut, all of the dough was made from mix. Uh, we didn't have anything frozen. And then later at the very end, they had some frozen, the hand-tossed dough would come in and they would thaw it and then stretch it. And then that was the hand-tossed dough. But up until then, everything was made from powder and water. And the powder had the different things in it that would make it dough, yeast and cornmeal and whatever for the different kinds. And but uh, but toward, only toward the end did we start having anything frozen. So he was making hundreds, 500, 600, sometimes 1,500 different pizza doughs and panning them up and storing them in the walk-in so we could do our entire 
day's sales, and he was really, really good. But I come to find out after I was in that restaurant for about six to nine months that he was causing me some consternation that I didn't know about. Basically, what he was doing was he would talk to the other employees, and he would talk about how things were going. He would talk about how I was managing the store, how one employee would act to another employee. So we'd talk about this person to this person, and he'd say, because that person acts that way, you, you know, that, they must be saying something about you. So he was instigating strife within the restaurant. And so one morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, I think it was a Friday morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, I decided I was going to have a conversation with him about that. I had some confirmed incidents, and one I even sort of caught the tail end of hearing it, right? And so I went and I said, okay, we need to talk. So he's in the middle of making dough, and he's standing next to the table. He's in the middle of making a batch of dough, but he was at the end of the dough for the day. And he had it, and, he, and so he's okay, we're going to talk. So he covered it up with plastic, that's what you have to do when you're waiting, and he stood there with his hand on the table, and he looked at me while I talked to him. Now, he'd been with the restaurant for longer than I had, but not with the company longer than I had. So he had his hand on the table, and he's looking right, looking right in my eye, and I explained to him my concerns. And as I explained to him my concerns, his facial expression changed to this. And I realized when his facial expression changed to this, that essentially he had stopped listening to what I was saying. It's called a smirk. You know, look it up in the dictionary. Different dictionaries have different definitions, but the bottom line is called a smirk. It's that smile that gets on a person's face when what is happening or what is saying sort of no longer applies to them. In fact, what is behind the smile is self-satisfaction. It's an understanding that I know better than you do, and therefore I'm just going to smile at you and wait until you go away, and I'm going to keep right on doing everything that I've been doing. So I asked him, I said, are you smiling? I didn't say smirk, but I said, are you smiling at me because you are basically ignoring what I'm saying? And he says, he says, oh, no. And he stops smiling. He goes, oh, no. No, I'm listening to every word you're saying. I said, are you going to take it into account? And he said, I'll, I'll take it into account. But he kind of rolled his eyes, and I realized it wasn't going to get any better, and it didn't. He kept right on doing what he was doing. A couple months later, uh, I wrote him up the first time, and within uh, like a day of his write-up, he gave his two weeks' notice, and I lost that really good dough person that really was helping make my restaurant very successful. And then I began making the dough for a while at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't like that, but I didn't regret having confronted him about it because he was hurting a lot of people. And a lot of people did um, appreciate the fact that he was no longer there talking about them and so on like that. And then we hired another girl, actually, who could come in on, on uh, those mornings, and she did the same thing he did, and she did it just as well as he did, except she didn't stand around and talk about everybody and, and cause that strike. That smirk is what I want you to bear in mind, that thought that, okay, I already get this, it's already good. Um, and we're going to look at something in the text that I hope will help us as Christians Never adopt that smirk toward God. And the truth is, you need to not adopt that smirk toward what's going on around you. And you'll see why in, in, as we go through the text. So maybe give me a hoot, a holler, amen, as we go to Psalm 24. Whoop! I miss Jason Wellington today. Jason, pray for him today. He's not with us. All right, Jason Wellington, here we go. I hope you're online watching. Miss Chris, if Jason Wellington's online, watch and say hi to him for me. All right, here we go. We're going to read the entirety of the psalm. I'm going to break it down as we go. It is poetic. This is a song. It is actually a song slash song service. You know what I mean by that? So it's a song that they would sing, and they would use it every week. 
at the, in the temple, but they would do a sort of a song service, and I'll point that out to you as, as we get there, okay? So here we go. Psalm 24, beginning in verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And so the psalmist starts off right away by kind of putting God on a pedestal and saying, the earth is completely different from God. The earth is owned by God and everything in the earth, right? Nothing was made except that which was made through him. Later in the verse we'll see, verses, we'll see that this psalm is really about the Messiah, not just about God, right? And so the earth and all that is in it and all those who dwell in it. Now I submit to you, and I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail here for a second, but I submit to you that this would include then angels and evil spirits and demons. And it is not that God does not own demons and evil spirits. Rather, it is that demons and evil spirits deny God's ownership. They rebel against God. So they too are owned by God. Everything that exists, you could say, in creation, and the psalmist uses the word the world, but surely he means creation, all belongs to God. Verse 2 says, For he has founded it upon the sea. So that for is it because. Because God created it, he created all the world, it makes perfect sense, that he owns it. And he established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Now, this is a, a power-packed verse, and I could do a lot here with the first part of this verse, and it could have been essentially the whole sermon, right? But you can already see the beginnings of how it applies and see where, where are you going to give an answer to God? What does God need you to answer him about? Where are you going to inform God? How are you going to come into the presence of God by any virtue or any success that you may have? If you are the best person to ever live, and later we'll see a measure of three that basically measures us as far as do we succeed for God. There's three measures given in this text. And even if you were perfect in every one of those three categories, how would you come into God's presence? That's what the psalmist is saying. Who could do it? Do you have a ticket by which you would ascend to heaven? Do you have a uh, a right to step into the presence of God? Second part of that verse, it says, and who may stand in his holy place? Now, wait a second. Because there's the possibility this is just a parallelism, right? Those two things could mean the same thing. Who would ascend? That would mean who would come into the presence of God. But then it says, and who may stand in his holy place? Now, is it, I, I ask you, is it the same thing to come into the presence of someone as it is to stand in their presence? And the answer is no, right? Just watch uh, any professional physical sport, right? You can put any boxer in the ring with any other boxer. But not every boxer will still be standing after even seconds, right? Or by round two. It is not the same thing to stand at length in the presence of someone as it is to come into their presence, okay? And the psalmist is pointing that out in a subtle way. He says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and who has not sworn deceitfully. And so here we get it. We get like three sort of measures right there all in that one verse. Clean hands. What are you doing with your hands? What are you doing? Hands talks about actions. What are your choices? Right? I watched a movie recently called The Choice. Great movie. Highly recommend it for anybody, especially if you're into romance and a little bit of comedy because it's got that in there, a little, little comedy, little drama. And it, and it gets real deep and real kind of sad for a moment, but I warn you, it, it, it's worth it. The end is very, very good. Point is, it's about choices. The movie says, 
All of your life is about choices. God would say, what choices are you making? Before you say, well, I'm making good choices. I serve the Lord, I'm working. You can be serving the Lord and working with your hands, and at the same time, you're not making good choices. You can be watching things. You can be distracted by things. You can be bringing things in that later, like not right now, won't be a problem right now, but later they're going to literally become a Lord in your life, and it's going to be hard to divorce yourself of those things and, and stick with God. Because while you were acting on behalf of God, you were also acting, giving place to sinful things, giving place to what, it, what doesn't belong to God or what belongs to God but rebels against Him. So it's clean hands and a pure heart. There's got to be something going on here. I submit to you that the pure heart in and of itself comes from Christ. I don't want to drill down on that too hard, but the bottom line is most of us realize that we were damaged goods before we met Jesus. If you're in the room and you've not met Jesus, you're still damaged goods. After having met Jesus, you're still damaged goods, but your heart at least has been regenerated by the Lord. It is new. It is fresh. You have been born again in your heart. And if you can submit the rest of you to that heart that's tied to Jesus, you'll do well. Clean hands and a pure heart. And then the second half of that verse, or second two-thirds, is not lifted up his soul to falsehood. In other words, don't kid yourself. Don't be hypocritical. Let's be real. And has not sworn deceitfully. That means under oath falsified a statement. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord. He's going to get a blessing. The one that meets those three, three to four qualifiers right there, he's going to get a blessing from the Lord. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. Notice that a perfect performance in those areas does not equal the righteousness. Because if you had a perfect performance in those areas, you would surely be allowed to ascend into the presence of the Lord, onto his holy hill. You would surely be able to stand in his holy place because you have all of those things, and then would be added unto you righteousness. So just being right, doing what's right, that alone does not provide righteousness. God must provide righteousness. All right, it says, He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. God is the God of our salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. So in other words, this is the way it's going to go, this is the way it's supposed to be. There's going to be a group of people, and don't take the word generation only literally, right? It's going to be a group of people that seek God, who seek God's face. And when it says even Jacob, it's talking about Israel, God's people, real Israel, if you will, which would include the church of God, grafted in to Israel by Jesus. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Okay, so now we have the king of glory coming in. Shh, come on now. Okay, we have the king of glory coming in, and the gates are commanded to open. And a lot of people have made a lot out of that poetic language where it says, lift up your heads, O gates, right? And be lifted up, O ancient doors. And in poetic language... Lift up your head or be lifted up means to come to your greater purpose, right? To arrive at a great place, to be elevated from just being an ordinary door to be a great door, right? So people will say, well, if you open the door of your heart, Jesus comes in and lives there with you, right? And uh, that's, you know, go to the New Testament, read Revelations 3, make a big deal out of that. And that's going way too far. Okay? I'm not saying that the psalmist wasn't getting a little bit of that prophecy, a little bit of that understanding, but it's going way too far to say that. All this is really saying is that if a door has a purpose, a greater purpose for that door would be to allow Jesus to come in. 
Now, if that applies to a door, it applies to you. If you have a purpose, if there is a thing you can do, if you're good at something, if you can make a difference in the world, then a greater purpose would be to do that thing, to enact your actions, or to make a difference in the world for God. And let God shine or work through those actions. A door can swing. A door can open. A door can allow somebody to come in. But no greater honor would there be to any door except that the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh, would come through that door. Just if he'd come through one time, in one instance, for one second passing through, would so. And then later we'd come back and we'd go, and people do this, by the way, it's been over 2,000 years now, but they go walk the Middle East, they go to Jerusalem, they go to where they believe Golgotha was, the hill on which he was crucified, they go to where they think maybe his tomb was, they don't even know it's real, they don't even know for sure, because it's so long ago, and it was not marked back then, and there was lots of wars in that area, they don't even know for sure where those places are, but they know where the Dead Sea is, right, they go on the Sea of Galilee, which Jesus parted, or I'm sorry, well, parted the storm, right, he smoothed the sea, he, he gave them smooth passage, he he parted nature, if you will, so he could, they could pass across the Sea of Galilee. And they go there and they say, my Lord was here. My Lord stopped the storm here. The wind stopped here. And it marks that place. It marks the surroundings in a way that brings it to the highest level. And that is, in a sense, what happens here on Sunday mornings. You may sit here this morning, and you may take it kind of lightheartedly. You may kind of sit back with a smirk and say, yeah, that's just a pastor. He's got to make it sound like that. He's got to make a big deal out of it. He's got to break it down in Scripture because that's what he, he's supposed to do. He's doing what God wants him to do. You may play on your phone or be distracted or whatever and take it lightly what God is saying. But I want you to understand that I know this for a fact. God has told me in my heart, I know it for a fact, that people have walked forward to this 3 foot by 10 foot area and had their lives completely changed. The Holy Spirit came into them, regenerated them, renewed them, sealed their heart for eternity, made them eternal beings to serve in the presence of a holy God for eternity. From that moment in time, the deed to their mansion in heaven was given over to them. From that moment in time, their name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is no joke. This is not something to sit back and take lightly. This place, and I understand, it's just a place, it's a piece of carpeting and a, and a bit of a stone floor, and whatever, it's just a place. But on this place, in amongst this people, God has done incredible, amazing, mind-boggling, baffling work. Amen. And if that has happened here, then you are in the presence. Like, like uh, you hear um, God saying to Moses, take off your shoes. For the land on which you stand is holy ground. Now, it's not about the ground. But the psalmist is pointing out that if these doors will open and allow the Messiah to enter. And make no doubt, they were thinking of it as the doors of the temple in Jerusalem, which was a model of the temple in heaven. Surely the Messiah would enter the temple in heaven. The question is, would the Messiah enter the temple on the earth? They had prophecies to say that they would, that he would, but if the people would not be found faithful, if he did, it would be a terrible day. And by the way, it was. <laughs> he entered and it was. He cleared the place with a whip of cords. Don't overthink it, but it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Three verses left. Number eight. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. 
And now you can see this is the song service. So they would stand outside. The people would gather uh, in a flock outside the front of the temple there and the doors would be closed. And they would cry out, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And the priests inside would say, Who is the King of glory? And the people outside would say, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And the doors would be opened. And in that moment, when those doors would be opened, the door that that God himself had not yet walked through, all the people would know, all the people would dwell on the fact that the God of heaven would come into their presence, would make himself Emmanuel, God with us, and come into their presence, and they would glorify God. It was a song of glorifying God. The King of glory may come in. The King of glory. All glory belongs to God. Anything else you glory? Anything else you give credit or you honor or you bow a knee to? Anything else you praise? If your mouth was made for praising God and all glory belongs to God, you praise something else? That is weak by comparison. In fact, I submit to you, it is a road you don't want to go down. When you start to recognize how good other things are and put them up on a pedestal like you do God, you're in big trouble. And yes, there's a lot of good things. Why? Because they all belong to the Lord, all having been created by the Lord. But we must not worship the creation. We must worship the Creator only because all glory belongs to Him. He is the King of glory. But notice there's a couple of other phrases in there. He is the strong and mighty. Oh, my God is powerful. He is not to be mocked. He can take your job from you. He can take your life from you. He can take your family from you. He can take your relationships from you. In fact, they all belong to him. All of it. He could do that. He doesn't want to because our God is not only strong and mighty, but he is loving. But there is a time at which it is better for you to lose something than it is for you to retain it. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Our God is a God of war. Don't kid yourself. I understand through Jesus Christ, he is also a God of peace. Peace on earth to all men. I understand. But you want peace with God? You better come make peace with God. You better find a way to turn your life over to God because God is not going to change who He is just because you want peace with Him. It's not going to be a treaty where we're going to negotiate terms. We say, well, God, if you'll give me this, 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 and this, I'll give you this. It's not like that. He doesn't have to give in to debate. Our God is a God of war. Jesus is the Lamb of God, but He is also the Lion of Judah. And then, the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord, means leader, master of hosts, means the armies of heaven. And you could say, of all God's people. For we have joined God's army in following Him. He is the Lord or master of of hosts. All right, there's a few things I want you to see in this text. I felt really kind of like we're laid on my heart. The first one is what God owns. What God owns. I, I, I own <laughs> a piece of property my house sits on. But the truth is the bank owns it. The bank owns it because when I wanted it, the bank paid for it. I couldn't pay for it. I didn't have tens of thousands of dollars, so the bank paid for it. 
And they said, well, we'll just put a lien on your property and then you'll pay us back the money with interest. And once you've paid us all the money and the interest, then you will own the property. So we have this idea. We go to the grocery store. We buy a gallon of milk. Before we get there, that particular gallon of milk is owned by, insert whatever grocery store. Then we give them the money and they give us the gallon of milk. Now we own the gallon of milk. So we have this simple understanding of ownership. But the psalmist has a different understanding of ownership. And I submit to you the correct understanding of ownership. And that is that all things created, all things in creation and all beings in creation are owned by God. The fact that this is so proposes some problems. Because that means when someone does something wrong, they are owned by God. Man decides to punish, we take our revenge, we cut them off from our friend group, whatever. We decide not to talk to them, or we go and punish them by slandering them, and yes, it's still slander, even if it's true, slandering them to another group of people or someone else to make their reputation bad, because they deserve it, because they did wrong. While you're slandering someone, remember you're slandering someone that God owns, I am owned by God. I have been since before I was born. Every baby in the womb is owned by God. I want you to think about that for a moment. If every baby in the womb is owned by God, how do you think God feels about 12 million abortions a year? Every baby in the womb is owned by God. Every murderer is owned by God. Every person in jail is owned by God. Every person driving down the road, as foolish as their driving may be, is owned by God. Every person that's out there trying to, if you pardon my saying it this way, screw you out of an honestly earned dollar, every one of them is owned by God. Changes the way we look at things, doesn't it? Why is there hatred in our world? If you hate someone, you are hating someone who is owned by God. I don't even own my family. And you mess with my family, you hate my family, we're going to have a problem. And it happens. By people who should love us, in my estimation. And yet, actions are conducted toward us that are basically hateful. But those people who are doing that are owned by God. It's all owned by God. What we're talking about here is stewardship. It's interesting because there's a parable in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the unfaithful or unjust steward. And he says, you ought to at least be like that. I'm not going to go there and read it, but I want to just give you a little synopsis of how this goes down and why it was so confusing to me at first. Jesus said we should be like the unjust steward. So the unjust steward is going to lose his job. He's the steward of his master's resources and he's been skimming off the top. And his master finds out, so he's going to fire him. going to get rid of him. So then he says, well, here's what I'm going to do. And he calls in his master's people who owe him money. And one after one, he says, how much do you owe the master? And he says, well, I owe him 500. So go take your bill and write 400. Well, you owe him 1,000, go take your bill and write 800. Go, you owe him 100, go take your bill and write 800. And he goes down the list of all the people who owns his master money, and he further steals money from his master. But this time he does it for the people who owe his master money, not for himself, or so it would appear. So that when he is fired by his master... And he goes to those masters whom he saved a lot of money, he'll find a place. 
because he's made an ally. He's not, they're probably not going to hire him because that's bad business. But they'll take care of him. Say, so, well, you just saved me. You saved me two hundred whatever denarii or whatever. I'll I'll hook you up. I'll get you some bread. I'll get you some clothing. I'll get you a place to live. Whatever, because you saved me all that money when you were with your old master. Oh no, I'm not going to employ you because I don't see you as trustworthy. But while you were with your old master, you saved me all that money. So I'm going to take care of you. And then Jesus says, you ought to at least be like this. Get this. This is what Jesus is saying. That is a teaching in the New Testament for non-believers. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're not surrendered completely to the Lord, if you're not a follower of Jesus and his lordship, if you're not put on the lordship of Jesus, then Jesus says, well, you ought to at least be like that guy. You ought to be taking the resources that actually belong to God and use them to bless other people so that they will make your life better in time. So when God gives you money, you should be giving that money to other people. It's God's money. You should give it to other people so that they will like you, so that they will favor you, so they will do what you want them to do when you're down and out. And you're not even doing that. Rather, you're hoarding it so that it will be to your account when you stand before the Lord guilty and go to hell forever. And in the meantime, you'll not have blessed anybody. You'll, not have, you'll, you'll have a rough time because you won't have bought people off like at least the wise, unjust servant did. Not very often in the New Testament you find Jesus teaching for people, saying, you're going to be, keep being lost? At least do lostness like this. And it starts with recognizing that it all belongs to God. And you say, well, I'm stealing it from God anyway. I may as well take that which belongs to God and use it for my benefit. But people aren't even doing that. Mostly they're just squandering it. What does God own? Literally Everything. At best, we are actual stewards. We've come into, into God's presence through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and now He is purifying us. He's given us a regenerated heart. We're in the process of being sanctified, and, and we've begun to realize that everything we have, your kids, your house, your money, your time, the food that you buy, all of it belongs to God. You don't have any food in your refrigerator that actually belongs to you. You only have food in your refrigerator that actually belongs to God. God owned the cow. Before God owned the cow, he owned the previous generations of cow back to Genesis 1 and 2 where God created the cows. All right? That's how it all got started. And I understand we're pretty far down the road, but the bottom line is you don't own the cow. You don't own the milk. And you don't own the jug. And you don't own the refrigerator. God owns everything in creation. He created it all. It's like the old joke that has the punchline where the guy says, oh, well, we, can, we can make a man just like God does. And he goes to pick up the dirt, the dust of the ground, and the... And the and the voice of God says, uh-uh, get your own dirt. Man can't make anything. Still trying, by the way. People are out there in the world spending millions of dollars to figure out how to make something out of nothing, and you just can't do it. It all belongs to God because it started with God, and he owns it all. All you can do is make something new out of it. And it really isn't all that new. There's nothing new under the sun. There are things that are different changed in shape and size and color and even workings, right? Just take a cell phone back a couple thousand years and see what they think about that. Well, first of all, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't do anything. It'd just light up, be a flashlight until the battery died, couldn't charge it. But the bottom line is, it really is nothing new. It's just taking more of what God made and combining it in crafty ways to make something different. God owns it all. And, by the way, not necessarily godly, but people who look at our, our earth realize that those resources, they cannot last forever. They will eventually run out. There is only so much titanium, only so much whatever, selenium, insert whatever. There's only so much to go around. There's only such, oh, so much oil. 
believe it or not, there's only so much wind. There's only so much of every resource that exists to go around. It all belongs to God. And God is not going to just magically regenerate it. He's not going to go, oh, you need more wind? Here's more. Oh, you need more oil? Here's more. God's not going to do that. God has set the earth on a time clock. It's running down. We are misusing the resources of God, and eventually we will stand before a holy God and answer for how we are using those resources. You are here today. Your cells are dying off and being regenerated. The cells that already died off, you misused them. You deserve for that alone to go to hell. But the grace of our God, Jesus Christ, died for us on the cross. And now, as people come to that knowledge, they can use what they currently have. The permission is this. You don't have to do it anymore. You can be born again and become a steward of that which is God's and use it in a way that God would have you use it. You are a steward here on this earth of all that belongs to God. The second thing in the text there is the psalmist is talking about who God is. Who is he? Well, he's the great creator. Obviously, he created everything, right? He's the great owner. We just kind of covered that, didn't we? He's the deed holder for everything you will ever use for his glory and everything you will ever not use for his glory. He owns the deed. He owns it all, including you and your strength and your, your ability and your creativity and your philosophy or your smirk. He owns it all. He's just and he's holy. Now we have a problem don't we? He's just and he's holy. Who can come up onto his hill? Who can ascend to the top of the hill? I remember I was in first grade, uh, no, kindergarten, and down the road from my house about three blocks, they were going to re-stone the parking lot. Back in the day when they were going to a parking lot, they were just going to put stone in it. Now most parking lots are asphalt, but it wasn't like that back then. And, and they were going to re-stone the parking lot. And they brought in a mountain. I kid you not, it was a mountain. Now I was like this tall, this tall in my cowboy boots, which I wore every single day. And we decided we were going to go play on the stone mountain, which was about 25 feet high pile of gravel. Played on a, a mountain of snow before, also about 25 feet high. That was really cool because when you fall in snow, it doesn't hurt. However, when you're on a 25 foot high pile of gravel and you fall and roll to the bottom, you get nicks and cuts and scratches and every other kind of thing. Dry spots in your skin that just break right open because the, the gravel just sucked the water right out of you. So me and about 20 other kids in the neighborhood decided we were going to play King of the Hill. And I guess the one thing I had going for me as a kindergartner is I wasn't afraid to hurt somebody. It wasn't very smart of me to be like that, but that's the way I was. So my brother played, and after about 15 minutes, he quit because he fell down a couple of times, and there's still 15, 20 kids out there playing, and there were kids out there three, four years older than me, but as I said, I wore cowboy boots every day, and so I, was, I would trip them, and I would kick them in the shin, and I would knock them down, and, and I'm, I'm a kindergartner playing king of the hill on top of a 25-foot-tall pile of gravel that was about... 60 foot long, and I'm running back and forth with my cowboy boots, grinding into the gravel, pushing kids down the hill. And eventually, no one, no one was coming up the hill. And I said to myself, I am king of the mountain! No one can come up on top of my mountain! At which point, a fifth grader tackled me. I rolled all the way down the hill, and he came with me. And uh, he got up, and I was bloody, and he was a little bit bloody, and he charged back up the hill, and I said, I'm done. And I went home, and got a bunch of band-aids, and uh, we'd have Neosporin back then. I think I had black salve. We got a bunch of band-aids and black salve. 
And then uh, about 15 minutes after I left and went home, uh, the cops came and the kids all got in trouble for playing on the gravel, but I didn't get in trouble. But I had cuts. I had like 30 cuts and scratches all over my body because this kid tackled me from behind and we rolled down together and I got all cut up and ground up. But for that one moment, I started thinking, I am at the top of the hill. And this is what happens to us when the sun shines bright, when the things go right, when we do what we thought we could do, when we take over and do what we make it turn out the way we wanted it to do. We forecast a plan. We think, I'm going to do this, and then we do it, and then we're breaking our arm, patting ourselves on the back because we did it. We're so self-satisfied. Believe it or not, that satisfaction that you're feeling right there, when that happens, it's a gift from God. It's owned by God. God made you an incredible creator with a lion, lion's heart to do amazing things. But He is a holy and just God. And when you have this going on, he has this going on. He'll shake his finger at you. He'll say, you keep that up. I'm warning you once, and I won't warn you again. I'm going to count to three, and you better do what I told you to do, or you're going to get a spanking. Just like a dad will do for a son he loves. He is a just and holy God, and he will chastise you to avoid that you should eventually come into his presence and have an exceptionally long time of having dishonored him with that which he blessed you with. you got to do it right. You have to do it right. Your hands must be acting on his behalf. Your mouth must be speaking on his behalf. You must do it right. Only someone whose hands are acting on his behalf, whose mouth is speaking on his behalf, and whose heart is purified on his behalf, only someone whose mind is in the right place can ascend up onto his holy hill. That's what he wrote. I, I didn't say that. That's what he wrote. And we got so many people in the world who fall into the cat in the other category, which is they say they can ascend up onto the holy hill. They seem to be living for the Lord. But in truth, what they have is self-satisfaction. They're not truly saved. They think that if they can just be right enough, good enough, work hard enough whatsoever, that they don't have to submit themselves to the Lord for righteousness that's God-delivered. Notice also that the psalmist is saying that his people welcome him. Remember that whole thing about the doors and how glorifying it would be? And, then, and them crying out. That was every week. Every single week they would enact, without fail, they would enact this this sort of song service. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. They all had that memorized like we, we could have the Lord's Prayer memorized if we'd say it like 30 times a day. But they all had this memorized, this song service. They would all do it together. It was every time without fail, faithfully. But what is the great irony? That He did come. And they missed it. He did come. And they didn't believe in Him. He did come, and they didn't follow Him. He did come, and they didn't recognize Him. Amongst all creation and all the things that God had blessed them with, He did come, and though the people are supposed to welcome Him, they did not, or if they welcomed Him, they did it with crucifixion. First John 2.17 says, This world is passing away, and also... It's lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. See, all of the New Testament, if you read the New Testament, all of the New Testament, it's not about coming up onto His holy hill. 
That's not about being born again so that you can ascend onto the holy hill. The truth is, I'm going to step on some toes or say something almost heretical right now, but the truth is that everybody can come into the presence of God. You understand that, right? Not, not only can everybody come into the presence of God, superficially speaking, right? By the way, what are the traits of God? He's omnipresent, right? So he's everywhere. So everyone can come into the presence of God. You are in the presence of God right now. If I am preaching a completely heretical sermon that is not a gift of the Holy Spirit, that is not godly in any way, if I am preaching out of some book that was not the Bible, if I am standing up here getting it completely wrong, you would still be in the presence of God because he is everywhere. When Paul talked about it in Acts 17, he said he set up all of our lives and orchestrated all the circumstances and all the boundaries so that people might turn and search for God. Remember that says, those who seek for your face. That people might turn and search for God. And then what does it say? And in so doing, discover that he was never far from them in the first place. Omnipresent. There's no problem. People are going to come into the presence of God. It also says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All people can come into the presence of God. It's not a question of whether you can come. You have encountered God. I know that because as I look around this room, I don't see anybody who hasn't been here before. And I was here and I encountered God the last time you were here. God came into your presence the last time you were. I know that for a fact. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then His Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. But you have encountered God. The question is not, will you encounter God? The question is, will you stand? That's the million dollar question. That's the lifelong question. That's the your soul hangs in the balance question. Will you stand? Will you stand? He who inquires after God and seeks God's countenance will discover of God that God is, has already been on his way to him. It's a quote by an unknown source. He who inquires after God. You want God? He who seeks his face. You want God's presence, God's effect, God's, God's connection with you in, his life, in your life. You will discover God. But in so doing, you will discover that God has already been on His way to you all the while. Daniel and his friends go down by the river to pray. They need, they need God to intervene. And they stay there for dozens of days praying. Tens of days. Finally, an angel comes and tells Daniel, says, I heard you pray on the very first day. But there was a problem with this angel that protects this other nation or whatever. So I've been coming. It was going to be happening all along. You've been praying faithfully. You've been serving. I understand that your dreams have not come true, and they may not. I understand that you may face difficulties in this lifetime. You may suffer. I understand that you may not have every dollar access that you want. And you may not always have the food in the refrigerator that you want. You may not have the designer clothes that you might like to have. You may not have the fast car or the well-lasting car. You may not have the spouse or significant other that you would like to have. You may not have children like you would like to have. But this much I know for sure. If you will seek after the God of the universe, you can come into his presence. And everything, 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 everything that you will have there will be better than anything that, wait for it, you don't have here. You don't have. 
those designer jeans. You don't have that faster car. You don't have that food even if you think you do. It doesn't belong to you. God is preparing a place in heaven for you in which the things will be for you just the same as the things down here are for you but without the flaws, without the suffering, without the hurting, without the pain, without the tears, without the death, there you will be eternally blessed if you can stand. Who may stand in His holy place? Seek the face of God. Put your hands to work for God. Be honest and true about your relationship in the Lord. This much i got to say and we're in conclusion now. Nobody. Nobody understands what the grace of God is actually like unless they can first understand what it means for the God of the universe who created everything and owns everything to put on flesh and come down and suffer like we do. Who is this God? He is holy and just. He is love. He's the God of all armies. The God who deserves all glory. And yet, and He owns it all. And yet, he comes to earth to subject himself to it. To colds and cold. To hunger and indigestion. To pain and bleeding. To leave the glory of heaven to become a man. To die on the cross. Pay the ultimate price so that we don't have to for an eternity. You begin to understand that. And then you can begin to understand grace. Be honest about that. To whom you owe everything. To whom you owe allegiance. And you can begin to understand grace. And if you begin to understand grace, God, as you follow him as Lord through his son Jesus Christ, will add unto you righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteous of God through him. And he will add righteousness to you. You don't have it unless Jesus adds it. And don't kid yourself when it says and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Lift up your heads, O gates. Jesus is coming again. The Messiah is coming again. And when he comes again, you may have been in his presence. You may have found your way to him. But if he has not added that righteousness, if you have not depended on him completely and he has added the righteousness to you, then you will not stand in his holy presence for long. That's what the word says. Not just in Psalm 24, but pretty much the entire New Testament. The irony is, when he came, they didn't recognize him. And when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faithfulness upon the earth? But maybe you already knew all that. Maybe you're feeling like you've come pretty far. Maybe you're feeling like you know Jesus and... You believed, and so the sinful things that you do, they're going to be taken care of. The bad decisions that you make, the other things that you put up as important, 
the creation things that you worship. It's okay. Jesus has got all that. He's going to take care of it. I submit to you, that smirk It's going to send you to hell if you're not careful. It's going to send you away from God if you're not careful. Do I know that Jesus forgives all sins, past, present, and future? Yes, that's what the word says. Do I understand that those who come before him with a contrite heart will be forgiven of everything they ever do that's wrong? Absolutely. But if you can willingly not be repentant, willingly not turn to God again and resubmit all the things that you have control over in your life, if you can willingly do that, then all you're doing is looking into the face of an almighty God who owns everything and would do all that to save you with a smirk. And God just might say, that way you're looking at me right now. Is that saying, you're not really listening to me? And you might say, oh no God, I'm listening. I know better. I have met you. I know enough of who you are. I know. And God says, does that mean you're really not going to do anything about it? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 